Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this is a monthly podcast where I go in depth with an author releasing their first book. If you like what you hear, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. This month's guest has had stories published in Catapult, Passages North, and the Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Review. Her debut novel, Days of Distraction, is out now. Her name is Alexandra Chang. This interview happened in early February, which seems like a lifetime ago now with COVID-19. So we don't really touch upon anything that has to do with that. But we do go in depth with the style and writing process of Days of Distraction, talking about the world of technology and especially tech journalism, and just chatted a lot about life like we always do on Day Beautiful, the podcast. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Alexandra. Hey, Alexandra, how you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah. And um, your book, Days of Distraction, comes out at the end of March, which this will come out the day it comes out. Um, What is Days of Distraction about? Days of Distraction is a contemporary coming of adulthood story narrated by um, a 24-year-old woman who, in the opening, is working as a tech journalist in San Francisco. And the novel tracks her life over the course of about, of about a year and a half as she leaves behind her career to follow her boyfriend to this upstate uh, New York college town, which is Ithaca, and sort of adjusts to her life there and later goes to visit uh, her father in China. And in a lot of ways, this book draws from that time period in my own life. It's about the precarity of young adulthood, and it's also about how a person finds and develops a sense of self when, you know, other people's perceptions are limiting or sometimes harmful when these like large societal forces like racism, sexism, capitalism put pressures on day-to-day relationships and existence. Um, the Maybe another thing to mention is that the novel is structured as a series of what you might call fragments or vignettes, and it incorporates source documents from Asian American history, especially around the history of interracial relationships. Hmm. And and looping back to, you said it was kind of based sort of around the time when you were, you know, coming into your own adulthood. You also were a technology writer for Wired? Yes. Yeah, I was uh, a staff writer at Wired. I also worked at uh, Macworld and this site, um, All Things Digital, that doesn't exist anymore, um, but it was part of the Wall Street Journal. That was like an intern. That was my first tech writing job. So uh, let's start there before I actually jump into the book. What? How did mm-hmm. you end up there at that internship then? What drew you to writing about technology? Hmm. To be honest, I was trying to find a way to write for a living. And I started at a vegan magazine um, after college. I mean, I had worked in communications and I'd worked for uh, a literary agent in San Francisco. And I started to just want to write on my own and um, was looking for what was available in San Francisco. So first the vegan magazine, then um, you know, tech journalism is huge in the Bay Area, and that seems like where I guess I could learn the most and have the, like, maybe 
like I could learn the most there and maybe have the most like to me at the time um, to be writing and covering the tech industry where, you know, a lot of exciting stuff was happening in the early 2010s in that industry. So I got into the all things digital internship um, and that was like only for one summer. Uh, And luckily I was able to, you know, transition to um, a staff editor job at Macworld and that led to my writing job at Wired. So did you have a strong background in technology or did you just kind of fall into that because that's what was (laughs) available? I think at the time I was like, I have a smartphone. I know how to use computers really well. Um, I use social media. So like, why can't, why wouldn't I be able to cover, you know, the tech industry? But yeah, I did not have a strong background. And I think looking back, I was a little naive to um, how little I knew. What was nice though, was that like, it was a, it, it was an industry that was constantly changing anyway. So that you, I don't know, reporters did have to like be learning all the time. So once I was able to, you know, get a footing in the tech industry, in like tech journalism, I felt comfortable there. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't have a background. I didn't have a background in journalism. I didn't have a background in tech. I was a rhetoric major in college and um, I just had this strong desire to write. And I knew that journalism was a way where you could write and actually earn a living or an okay living for a person in their, you know, early (laughs) twenties. No, I feel, I think we have similar backgrounds. I, my undergrad was in education. I was planning on being a teacher and then I student taught and was like, this is not for me. And I found an internship with a pop culture magazine in Atlanta. And I like, that's, and I had no clue what I was doing, but I faked it enough until I learned how to do it. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's, I feel like that's a good approach to like getting, starting a career or like, you know, having a job at that age. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a lot of people in their early twenties, a lot of people in their early twenties, like have this sense that they're going to land like their $80,000 a year job right away (laughs) and, or whatever, you know? And no, there's like, there's some hustle you have to do in your early twenties and you're going to fall a few times. And I feel like not, mm-hmm. I, and I did teach high school for two years and I would, I would teach seniors, juniors and seniors. And they would be like, right after college, I'm going to be X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if you are, but like, good, just, just <laughs> be prepared to not be that right were away. You, were you teaching English? I taught uh, yeah, English lit, American lit, uh, 11th grade. And then like just senior composition, getting them ready for college. Yeah. I was a bad teacher mm-hmm. though. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got out of that, and then uh, I, I during that time is when I started interviewing authors, though, because I'm not necessarily a fiction writer, and uh, mm-hmm. and I kind of just again faked that until people be- trusted me and believed in me to interview like Pulitzer Prize winners and now debut authors. Well, so, I mean, were you always reading a lot of fiction, though? Yes, yes. I think I was always a reader. Um, I mm-hmm. I. I it was hard to read while I was an undergrad and then teaching because I was reading, you know, Raisin in a Sun five times a day for my different classes. Um, 
But once I kind of quit teaching and transitioned, I, yeah, it's just, I think that's what makes a good writer is people who read a lot, uh, at first, especially. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, definitely. And then when you were, when you were, you know, as a, in the tech journalism industry, were you reading a lot? I was trying to read fiction. I mean, I feel like fiction has been a constant in my life, reading fiction. So I was reading even when I was working, you know, reading fiction while I was working as a tech journalist. Obviously, I had to read a lot of tech news, (laughs) too. Um, But, yeah, I never – it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you you aren't a fiction writer, but are interviewing a lot of fiction writers. Because I also, like, didn't really consider myself, like, capable of writing fiction for a long time. Um, I think I just like thought of myself as a reader and, um, you know, I enjoy fiction, but that's like, you know, a dream that's like too too achieving. Um, When did you start feeling like you could write fiction then? Mm, I mean, I know I took a couple classes in college and I wasn't super great at it then. Um, and honestly, it wasn't really until I left San Francisco and, you know, when a big life change happens, I had to like reevaluate. Um, you know, I ended up in Ithaca and I thought I was going to be a freelance journalist and, you know, transitioned into, uh, feature writing and, um, hopefully like investigative reporting. But also I lived in upstate New York and um, living here was a big transition for me, like going from San Francisco where it's a big city or it's a smallish city, but way bigger than Ithaca. And I just like didn't know what to do with myself, Um, but I ended up getting a job at Cornell just to like have a sense of, I guess, ties to the place that I was living, which I didn't for a long time. Um, And while I was at Cornell, we were able to take classes as staff members. And I enrolled in a fiction workshop with uh, John Robert Lennon, who is a professor at Cornell in, in the creative writing department. And that was, I think, the first time in my adult life that I thought like, huh, you know, maybe I can do this. I've been reading for so long. Um, I think I have ideas. This seems fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why not? And and then is that when you started applying for MFAs or did you just start writing fiction while working at Cornell more and more? I ended up applying to MFAs like pretty soon after um, I started working at Cornell. Uh, well, I had never heard of fully funded MFA programs before I moved to Ithaca. Um, I think I looked into the Cornell MFA program and I was like, whoa, these students get paid to four years. That's crazy. Um, Cause I remember like one of my former colleagues at Wired had, talked about wanting to go to an MFA program. And I was like, what a waste of money. What a waste of time. Um, (laughs) But 
yeah, once I actually understood that there were ones where where they provided funding, um, I was like, okay, let's do this. But you know, I I didn't want to move. I was really limited based off of you know where I lived, so I only applied to Cornell and Syracuse and one low residency program. Mm-hmm. So you ended and up at miraculously. Yeah, miraculously yeah. got into Syracuse. <laughs> yeah, so you ended up at Syracuse with George. Was George Saunders one of your your professors then? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah George was. Yeah, and um, and what was I in my in the February podcast? I talked to Brandon Taylor, who was just at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he talked. We talked a lot mm-hmm. about the MFA and his opinions about an MFA and his experiences there. <laughs> so I'll ask you mm-hmm. what your experience was like at at Syracuse, um, what did you take away from it those years you were there? I was so excited to go back to school because um, I had been like out of school for five years and also, you know, I was in the life. So when I got into Syracuse, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I get to go back and sit in like classes and talk about books. Um, So that was just really cool for me. Um, In terms of like things that I took away, I guess like what I appreciated was being in an environment where everyone really cared about literature. And I had never been, I guess, like an undergrad, maybe I had, but I maybe was like a little bit too checked out to like care that much. Um, But it was cool to be around people who took writing seriously and um, to learn from these professors who, you know, had done it. Like they, they've written lots of books like George, Dana Spiata, Jonathan D. Um, so I kind of soaked that all up. Um, but, you know, I've, there are definitely, like, downs to the MFA programs. Um, but I guess, I guess, like, what I most took away from it was just, like, the amount of time I had, too, to write. And, like, um, and also I made, like, good friends in the program who I still consider readers of my work who I, I imagine like will read my work for um and will exchange work for I hope like the rest of our days. Yeah. Um yeah, what did Brandon say like what he, it was like at Iowa? Because I know Iowa's so different too. Uh, he yeah, it was <clears throat> excuse me. It was mostly he he said like don't go to an MFA unless it's fully funded and and he yeah, uh, yeah. he was not a fan of he felt the workshops didn't necessarily help his, the actual writing and a lot of what Mm. he did, what he did there wasn't what he's publishing now or going to publish. Um, was days of, was days of distraction, something you published, you were worked, sorry, you were working on while at Syracuse or did this come outside of the workshops? I mean, I was working on it while I was at Syracuse, but I never brought it to workshops. He said something similar. I yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, first, like, I don't think workshop is super conducive to novels. Um, like, we did workshop novels occasionally. And, you know, if you 
if we read like only the first 40 pages, it just, it's like, what can you say besides like, yeah, I would want to read more of this or like, I don't know, like what happens later. And then the writer's like, well, all this other stuff happens. And like, your question gets addressed, like in this next chapter. I'm like, okay, like, cool, keep going. Um, But yeah, I kind of, I just kept the novel to myself because I maybe by the time that like I was writing it, I didn't feel like it would be helpful to bring it to workshop. And also maybe I was being like protective. Like I, I, it is a personal, it is a pretty personal novel. And, and also I had no idea what I was doing and I just didn't want to sort of paint it with outside reads or outside perspectives because I was worried that I would stop writing it if I, if anybody even had any thoughts about it. Mm. You said it was very personal. When, when did you start writing, writing it? Was it prior to Syracuse or was it just during the Syracuse time? Yeah, it was during Syracuse time. So I started um, like the second semester of my first year in the MFA program. And by then I was like several years out from having lived in San Francisco and like worked in, worked as a tech journalist and um yeah I guess like I actually didn't really know that I was writing about that time period so much at first like I was just writing these fragments that were more like thematically connected and I ended up having to like out when I started ordering them into the novel shape and then like filling in gaps but a lot of it was about um things that had happened like three to five years earlier. Um, So I had like some distance from that time period and felt like I could more easily fictionalize that time. And, and because they were, the novels consisted of these fragments, these vignettes, and you didn't necessarily know you were writing a novel at first. When did you realize it was a novel then? Hmm. I was probably in denial for a while. Like, I don't, I was, there was one summer where I wrote maybe like 30,000 words of fragments. And I was like, this is, this is my long project. (laughs) I was like, who knows if it's a novel because it felt so jumbled and not structured. Um, So I guess I, decided that it was going to be a novel once um I guess in my third year probably and I did end up um structuring it and filling in gaps and stuff so that I could have a you know a very rough complete draft for my and what was it like organizing organizing all these fragments these like 30,000 plus words you had um, what was that process oh like? God. Yeah, it was a nightmare. <laughs> it was so bad. Um, just because I hadn't been organizing them as I went. So then I just had to print out all of the pages. And I think, like, it didn't take me that long to realize, like, oh, this can be organized by place. Um, maybe, like, ordering chronologically, you know, having a chronological arc does give me like a scaffold for this novel. So I just started 
these like new documents where it was like San Francisco and then like everything that happened in San Francisco, I just put that in the document. Um, like Ithaca, I put like everything in that one. And I mean, that was like an absurd list something thousand words so there was a lot of filling in that I had to do after ordering and and I reordered so many times because like with the fragments once you move one it like changes everything around it and it's kind of like a a horrifying domino effect and a lot of like movement happens and things get lost (laughs) and have to be refound because this was outside of your workshop and, and all of the classes, were you writing things as personal as this in your workshops? Mm, not maybe as much, like not so much that where like, of course there were occasions where, you know, the narrator maybe could have been read as, you know, a fictionalized version of myself, but it was, so much inviting the reader to consider that. Um, and I was doing, yeah, I was writing short stories for workshop and they, with short stories, what I like, is just like, you know, they're, well, first of all, they're just shorter. And um, it's, it was easier for me to like experiment with some new idea Um like if I wanted to write uh, like an omniscient narrator that had a really like strong opinion about um, the character in in the story, like I could do that, uh, and it would be like a self, you know, a contained piece that lasts only like sixteen pages. Um, so it was actually really nice to write short stories as like breaks from the novel cause, because the novel is just really in one voice the whole way through. Um, so, yeah, no, I, what I, maybe I'm deluded though. Maybe my short stories are really personal and I just don't realize that <laughs> because I did have somebody in one of my workshops say like, I think you could write a linked story collection where basically all the stories are narrated by the same person throughout her life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that like there were more than two stories like that. <laughs> How much of your own life or your own opinions are put into the main character. Mm, I mean, I know like there's the basic, I know the basic beats of, you know, San Francisco, New York, but like how, like on a deeper level. Yeah. It is a really good question because I'm not even really sure. I think in writing the novel there were a lot of times where I let the narrator have an opinion or like do something that I would never commit to in my own life um and something that I've not really ever done or said I let the narrator do so in a lot of ways I did think of the narrator probably because she was younger than I was when I was writing. I sort of made her this like more, like more neurotic, more anxious, more like 
even more like questioning and um, person than I was. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I do feel like, of course, a lot of the questions that she asks in the book are questions that I've been concerned with. Um, But I think the nice part about fiction is that, you know, there are a lot of thoughts and opinions and um, scenes and like dialogue that, that like, you know, are not connected like super closely to me as a person. Um, Yeah. I remember like Sheila Hetty said in an interview that um, she was able to give the narrator of how should a person be her name because the like thoughts the narrator had were so apart from her and like separate from her that like she felt comfortable like just saying like yeah that's fictional Sheila maybe I can relate to that a little too definitely and what I guess after after this became a novel and and you pieced everything together what did you learn about yourself as a writer after days of distraction was finally completed mm. <laughs> uh, i wish i had learned something like really clear about myself i'm like still in probably that stage where i'm not really sure what i learned about myself as a writer. Um, I guess like one thing that I am hoping to like remember as I embark on like another project is that for me, like the initial writing stages are the most exciting as long as they feel to me, like, I can't think about, you know, what is this going to become? Is this going to be published? Is this something that like other people will even want to read? Uh, Because that's really distracting and kind of debilitating for me. Um, So I am trying to remember like what it felt like to start this book before I really knew what it was and how that was like a really fun writing period. And then did you learn anything about I, I you, you you comment a lot about on on culture current and present is there anything mm. that that you learned that kind of shocked you you know from the past or what was going on in the tech world that you may have missed while you were actually living in the tech world oh yeah i mean i feel like when i was there i knew that there were like diversity issues like mm-hmm. there were that we were writing articles about that um and there were like plenty of articles about like how tech had you know terrible like representation of women and people of color it's, it is just like a white male dominated industry and i think like being in journalism tech journalism maybe i thought like oh we're not at the time, I think I was just, like, so happy to be there, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really thinking about how, like, tech journalism was, like, mirroring those same issues, um, you know, complicit in a lot of ways. Uh, but 
you know, towards the end of my time in tech journalism, it was it was hard because I think those things just started to feel very present in my like day to day working life. Um, yeah, so th- those parts of the book where you know I tried for a really long time to get a raise and. I just never got one. Um, I was sort of like strung along, uh, you know, praised for my work, but never sort of mm, concretely compensated. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, yeah, it was just like hard to be, to be there as like a young woman of color. Um, And the newsroom was, predominantly white all of the editors like most the vast majority of the editors were white men and I think by the time I was writing this book I'm not sure that I necessarily like learned anything new but I was maybe better able to articulate like what had happened Mm -hmm. and I mean I was also in another white dominant space um and the MSA program, and there were things that were going on while I was in, in, in the MSA that I sort of saw, like, paralleling mm-hmm. what had happened when I was um, in tech journalism. So I did bring some of that into the book as well. Okay, and then writing about that time period, was it not scarring, but was it difficult to revisit <laughs> that uh, at all? Like knowing what you know now about how like the world works and just wanting to shake a younger Alexander and say, this is not right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not really, no, I don't think it was. I think I was like comfortable at those parts. I was comfortable enough just being like, yeah, that sucked. And like, now I'm writing about it and it's still like an issue. It's still an issue in tech journalism. It's still an issue in the tech industry. It's still an issue in academia, like most industries really. Um, I don't think that that part was like maybe as difficult for me to write about probably because um, when I was writing and then having to like, you know, edit myself. Um but that is an interesting question. I should think about that more. How much like in the writing I like felt for my past self. Yeah. I mean, cause like, I know this isn't an autobiography or it's like the character, the narrator is different than you, but with something so personal and so lived in, I often mm-hmm. wonder like how authors handle that, whether it's stress or, you know, trauma or yeah even even the happy moments like reliving happy moments within not necessarily like i know like your tech journalism days you you never said they were dark days but like just like uh, people who have like you know dark times but there's happy Mm -hmm. moments in it yeah yeah i mean i think well one section that i really did have a hard time whenever i worked on like Honestly, like whenever I wrote about the relationship between the narrator and Jay, her boyfriend, and like whenever they were like arguing about something or especially if they had like um, when I was working on like sections where there was a lot of conflict between them, especially around like discussions of race and racism, 
that was hard. And like, sometimes I would get out of those sections and like, uh, not feel good about my relationship, even though it wasn't the reality of my relationship in the present day and in that moment. Um, so that was weird. Yeah, I, I could imagine. Um, and then part, yeah. of, part, part of the novel outside of like the narrator's life is these like uh, firsthand accounts, like these uh, articles from like 1903 or different years. Mm-hmm. When did that become a part of these vignettes or were they there early on? Mm, they weren't there early on, but I once I had like realized that this was a novel, I always knew that I wanted to incorporate historical documents and historical elements into the book. I just wasn't entirely sure how I was going to do that. Um, I had, I think, in revision, was it in revision? Or maybe I was still writing, but I read um, Valeria Luiselli's Faces in the Crowd and uh, Max Frisch's Man in the Holocene and both of those, oh, and Annalise Chen's So Many Olympic Exertions. And all three of those incorporate like a lot of research and um, and some historical figures. So I was seeing how like the fragmentary form was really conducive to, you know, adding things. I mean, in Man in the Holocene, he's just literally adding like encyclopedia pages and then um, in Faces in the Crowd, the narrator is like obsessed with this poet and his voice comes in more and more. And then so many Olympic exertions, she's like including so much sports research and a lot of like little vignettes of like uh, sports figures that, you know, were important to the narrator. So it, I was doing research while I was writing and Um, you know, like with a lot of research, most of it didn't make it into the book, but there were certain characters who, historical characters, um, who stood out to me. And I knew too, that like, I wanted the narrator to be thinking about like the history of interracial relationships between Asians and whites in America. Um, so yeah, I was looking into that and happened upon Yame Kin, a woman who I'd like never heard of before I started researching for this book. Um, and I think just like the more I learned about her, the more I was surprised that I had never heard of her uh, because she was such a prominent figure in her time. And I think I sort of like gave that sense of discovery that I was having, like as I was writing that book to the narrator mm-hmm. as she's like living in Ithaca. And all this commentary, I think, like what what really blew me away about your book was like these these observations and just how how focused in yet broad you you're able to be. Um, what do you hope readers take away after after they walk away from Days of Distraction? Hmm. Well, first of all, thanks for saying that about the book. Um, <laughs> I guess I hope that they walk away from the book with questions. I don't know. Questions about like 
just being a person in the world and maybe being more, I would mean, I would love if people walked away feeling like, you know, they could be like more awake to the world in some way. Um, I don't really necessarily feel like my book offers any sort of answers with anything. Um, yeah, I guess like I would just be happy if somebody read it and had a shift in mindset or like a, a, a feeling that they could be like more open to the world around them in some way. Mm-hmm. Earlier I asked if That's how you changed as a writer. How How do you think you've changed personally or are you more open to the world in ways you didn't think you would be since finishing the novel? Hmm. I wish I, I would like to think that I am, but I'm not sure that I am. How much have I changed as a person? Um, it's hard right now for me to like remember even how I felt, you know, how long the publishing process is. Um, so I think maybe after I wrote the book, I was like, wow. I felt like I had the sense of, I don't know, accomplishment, I guess. Like, I can't believe I did that. Um, but now I'm not sure. Like, I feel distant from even that past version of myself that's like from, you know, last year. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. I, I think. I... Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it, it's. It's always interesting talking to like debut authors since that's what this day beautiful project is. Um, talking to them before the books yeah. come out because you're in this state of limbo where yes, you've accomplished something that you know is you amazing. Like you you finished a book or a short story collection or you know essays, but the world hasn't seen it yet, and it's like, what do you do right now? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. How have other debut authors that you've talked to, like, answered that question? Do they feel like it's funny? They've changed. It's <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like some people, you know, they are still in their MFA or they never did an MFA and or they're you know published <clears throat> journalist and they're just like this was just. Some people will be like this is just another another task completed or. So for some people, they mm-hmm. were working on a novel for 10 plus years and, you know, like they finally published in their 40s and it's like this great sense of accomplishment and they're questioning what's next because they spent so long on one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how that feels. Yeah. I think like being a debut author is so strange because there's this feeling that like something that you've always wanted is finally happening. Mm-hmm. But you have, but there's like no sense of like knowing, well, now what's like, what's going to happen next that I've done this thing that like, I've always wanted to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm definitely back in the state of like questioning, I think, which is, I think a productive place to be for writing. So are you, are you working on a next project or are you just in that questioning stage of what might interest you? <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to be working on, um, and I have been like dipping in and out of it, a a story collection that is going to um, come out at the end of 2021. At least that's the schedule that we're on. Um, So those stories are, 
you know, pieces from throughout like the last, I don't know, five or six years. Um, and I'm writing like a couple of new stories as well. And I just keep on like tossing around the idea of a new novel in my head, but I haven't been able to like, get very much on the page yet. I've, I feel like the next thing I want to write is, I just feel like it's really different from what I did in Days of Distraction, that it's kind of scary to, to start writing it. Well, the good thing is you have like a schedule for short stories, so you can stay on track yeah. while, while thinking of that novel. Um, and there's not that existential mm-hmm. dread looming over you of, well, I don't know what's next that completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least I have that. <laughs> Whether or not I can stay on track. Sure, yeah. We'll I mean, see. time is relative, right? Um, as we wrap mm-hmm. up, I guess I just want to ask um, what you've been reading or that's come out recently or that might be coming out that other readers might enjoy? Yeah, I have been lucky to read books that um, a lot of debuts that have been coming out in 2020 or are forthcoming in 2020. Um, one of them that I've really loved is Meng Jin's Little Gods. Um, I think you interviewed her for the site. I did. Yeah, she was. I love that book. It was so good. Yeah, yeah, it's so great. Um, and takes place, well, a lot of it takes place in Shanghai, which is where uh, my parents are from, too. So I like, I really loved reading about, um, reading that in the book. And then uh, Megan Giddings, she has a book called Lakewood coming out on March 24th. And it's like, super creepy and amazing um, about like, the scientific studies that are taking place in the uh, a place to live. and yeah, I won't spoil too much of it, but it's great. Um, and see Pam Jang's how much of these hills is gold is coming out on April 7th. And that's like a retelling of a Western, um, from the perspective of a Chinese American immigrant family, um, mostly from one of the daughter's perspectives. Um, very lush and um, just like atmospheric, really beautiful uh, set in this like gritty landscape of the yeah. American West. Yeah. Have you read it? Yes, I loved I'm it. Like, yeah. You probably know all these books. <laughs> but, yeah, I haven't read Lakewood yet, though. I haven't. I have a galley, and it's just there's so many books coming out in March and April that I feel overwhelmed. And so now I'm probably going to yeah. add Lakewood to the top of my to-be-read list. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I, this spring just seems like jam-packed full of amazing books. So um feeling like lucky to be writing in this time. Yeah, I, but, I, I yeah, honestly feel really like, exciting. yeah, like spring 2020, for debuts alone, there's so many coming out. And then there's so many great established writers that are coming out with, like, sophomore oh my gosh it's, yeah it's just yes your your book is coming out in a wave of great books and and your book is great yeah. as well thank you yes well thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and and being flexible about chatting um oh it, yeah it, no thank you for taking the time and yes. thank you for like putting on this podcast it's really cool again thank you so much to alexandra chang like I mentioned at the beginning of this, that was recorded long before COVID-19 took over our lives. If you 
haven't pre-ordered her book, now it's out so you can get it from your local independent store, please pick it up. Please follow her. She is on the web at alexandrachang.com, on Twitter at Alexandra underscore Chang. I will link that in the show notes. As always, you can follow Daybeautiful at daybeautiful.net. All the social medias is just at Daybeautiful. Uh, keep subscribing to this. Please leave some comments and star it, five star it, and iTunes or wherever you listen to it. That would help a lot. Y'all have a good one. Until next time.